Hello again, Paul. Uh, look, it's that time of the week again. I see. Um, come on in. Uh, how are you feeling? What What's been happening this week? I'm I'm just a bit confused. I mean, I consider myself a DC fan, like primarily. But mm-hmm. well, that that's why you have the DC OCD. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, I really like the Marvels. Like Marvel movies are great. I think they're great. We, you know, generally the DC nice. movies aren't as good as the Marvel ones, and I wish that wasn't the case. But you know, I find myself very conflicted because you know I go to the movies and I really like you know Avengers and things like that. Yeah. And then you yeah. know I, I see you know some of the DC stuff and then I, not so much. But um, right. I, I, what what do I do about that? Ah, Paul, you do realize you can like them both, yeah? What? Mm. Really? Do you think that will work? Mm-hmm. Sure, why not? Oh, okay, I'll try it. Hello and welcome to DCOCD, the DC Events Podcast, where we're looking at every single DC event from Crisis on Infinite Earths on up in order, and we're putting them in context and we're scoring them as we go. And I don't know where we're going to get to, but uh, I know where we are right now, and it, this is an interesting one. This is something that isn't entirely DC-oriented, but uh, very much belongs on this list. So today we are talking about... JLA Avengers. And to do this, I have called in the person who I think is the biggest appreciator of George Perez art in the world that I know of, and that is Mr. Zoom Yukinori. Hi, Zoom. Hello. Thank you for having me here, Paul. It's, I'm just excited to be part of an extensive evaluation of every eventy event DC ever evented. <laughs> Classic Zoomisms already. Do you want to tell people a little bit about you and why? Um, I mean, I think you're uniquely qualified to assess this because you are, in fact, an artist um, and probably the first artist of note that we've had on this show. <laughs> I don't know if I consider myself an artist of note, but thank you. But yes, yes, I've been I've been following George Perez for much of his career, really. Um, I guess most of his DC career, actually, when he started in Justice League and, and New Teen Titans. So you've been reading comics before I have, because I didn't really start till about 87, 88, so around then? Yeah, I started in 73. Yeah, you win. <laughs> and I think because of that, you, you got to see George Perez coming up as a new newcomer and then blossoming as to become like the most amazing artist in comics? Essentially, yes. I mean, when I first saw his work, it, it was all very dynamic, but it, it, it just looked a little... Um, well, compared to what he does now, you know, it, it looked very uh, loose and some of it kind of had a little bit of Jack Kirby feel to it, but with better proportions, let's say. It was almost like a mix between Rich Buckler and Jack Kirby in my original uh, assessment of, of his work. But yes, I did grow to appreciate it more. When I saw it in Justice League, I thought he was a great successor to Dick Dillon, who was another one of my favorite artists at the time. And then just the work that he was doing on New Teen Titans was just phenomenal. Yeah, so much detail. Anyway, let's introduce this properly because I am yes, we're yes. just <laughs> falling straight into talking, which is too easy with you. Um, so we're talking about JLA Avengers, which came out in 2003, and it was written by Kurt Busiek with art by George Perez. Uh, so much art. 200 pages of art. Uh, wow. Uh, lettered by Richard Starkings, uh, coloured by Tom Smith, and it was edited by a few people from DC and a few people from Marvel. So we ended up with Tom Brevoort, Mike Carlin, Dan Raspler, and there was Steve Wacker helping... Andy Schmidt and Mark Samarak. So now this was a project. Well, you've got to go back in history a bit to talk about this. We've got to put it in its place. So basically, uh, DC and Marvel have um, you know two successful companies doing sort of different takes on superheroes, uh, growing up at the same time. But 
1976, they agreed to get together and do a Superman vs. Spider-Man book, and that was a big success. And then after that, they did a few others. Um, in 81, they did Spider-Man vs. Superman, Batman vs. Hulk. In 82, they did the X-Men and the Teen Titans together, which was a bit of a landmark. And they were all gearing up towards doing JLA Avengers, you know, bringing the two biggest teams from both universes together to uh, tell an epic story. So they... George Perez was going to do this. Roy Thomas was writing it. They had uh, editors from both companies to help. And, you know, George got started, did 21 pages of art. And then the wheels fell off due to miscommunication between two companies. So there was, uh, yeah, uh, things got tense um, yes. because not everyone was happy with what was happening. And people were saying, let's wait and get this right. And other people were going, no, we've got to start because um, George has a, a window he want, he, and he takes a long time to work. Let's get it uh, going. Um, so 21 pages were finished. And then the project uh, stalled out and stopped altogether. And things got a little bit nasty at the, at the end of it little bit of recriminations yeah and all of this ends up with 21 pages of jla avengers art which ended up eventually in the hands of rob liefeld when he post image <laughs> when he bought them and um when they kind of these pages went on tour that got people excited for the project again and um it came back to life and uh in the interim uh the relation between dc and marvel had thawed and they were back in doing you know punisher batman and things like that from 94 and there was a whole you know lots of I'd call them fairly little crossovers between the two companies, between 94 and 99, with the exception of uh, in 95 they did DC versus Marvel, which was, um, you know, let's pit the characters against each other. Now, um, you may wonder why we didn't cover this on DCOCD, and the main reason is I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the art's good. Uh, I found the story is not good. Um, well, I, I heard that the battles were literally phoned in. Uh, yeah, the public got to vote on the results, and it became, um, I, as a DC fan predominantly, uh, some of the outcomes were very disappointing because it, you know, it shouldn't be a popularity contest when it comes to uh, a battle of powers, but in this case it was. So you got things like Storm beating Wonder Woman, which today uh, the popularity would be reversed and that would <laughs> couldn't be imagined but back then the x-men were so popular and wonder woman was you know she was a bit of a tired character to most people back in 95 so that's why dc versus marvel is never going to be a classic but one of the things that did it led to the amalgam universe which is also um sort of two side eventy for for dc ocd i thought but it has brought us to this point where eventually um they decided to get the show on the road again for JLA Avengers and this time Kurt Busiek who is a man who is very uh, well versed in both universes probably second only to Mark Wade yeah to, to put the project back on track and well, uh, actually Mark Wade was originally going to be one of the co-writers because he was writing JLA at the time when they were talking about it really Mark Wade and, and Kurt Busiek were already talking about it before the two companies even you know made the formal agreement to do the project and then by the time that formal agreement came by Mark Wade had an exclusive contract with CrossGen, uh. which meant that he could not uh, write it. So Kurt, Kurt Busiek became the uh, exclusive writer of that. And of course, George Perez also had an exclusive contract with CrossGen, but he knew that this project was uh, in talks and he had a loophole added saying that if the JLA Avengers project actually is greenlit, that he would be able to step away from CrossGen and actually do that. Wow. So, well, that was uh, a very good loophole and uh, oh, yes. uh, very very wise, considering uh, the, the history of and the future of CrossGen at the time. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> well, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. And, and you got to wonder if there was an opportunity cost with George Perez not being there at the ground floor, that, that may have led to CrossGen's downfall. I don't know. I, I hear there was a lot more just business administration behind all of that. Yeah, well, I mean, there were personality <laughs> clashes as well, I believe. A clash of egos. <laughs> yes. That's probably enough history on the project. What uh, Do you want to talk about the plot of this comic, these four issues that came out in uh, 2003? Oh, well, thank you, sir. Yes, here we go. Two monstrously powerful beings of dubious morality pit two superhero teams against each other on a cosmic scavenger hunt for a number of items that contain unimaginable power. The two teams continue to fight each other until they eventually learn of the villain's scheme and then team up to put an end to it. 
No, wait, sorry. That was the Avengers Defenders War from 1973 by Steve Englehart. I'm sorry. Let me try that again. A devourer of universes traverses the multiverse, destroying alternate reality after alternate reality, eventually forcing the superheroes from different realities to team up and work together to overcome this catastrophic threat. Oh, no, excuse me. That was Crisis on Infinite Earths from 1985, written by Marv Wolfman. Hang on. But but did you know, one day in the early noughties, a comic reader was strutting down a busy sidewalk, leafing through his tear sheets of the Avengers Defenders War, while another reader was rounding the corner, reading her pages of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Both were so engrossed in their stories that they were not watching where they were going, and then they bumped into each other. Hey, you got Crisis in my Avengers Defenders War. No, you got Avengers Defenders War all over my Crisis. Oh, but wait, we already covered the history of the project, didn't we? You asked for a plot summary, did you not? Yes, I did. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very well. <clears throat> okay, here goes. The story began with Krona, the Owen who was exiled from his race for daring to seek the secrets behind the origin of the universe. He had somehow gained the power of entropy in the 1990s and was using that here to travel across the multiverse destroying universes in his latest attempt to seek the truth of creation. He eventually arrived in the Marvel Universe and met the Grandmaster, who wanted to save his universe, so he proposed that they play a game. If Krona wins, the Grandmaster would lead him to the one being in his universe who had witnessed the actual creation, knowing full well that Krona's attempts to extract information from this being may well destroy the universe. But if Krona loses, he would have to spare the Grandmaster's universe and just move on. Of course, the champions representing the respective universes were the 2003 rosters of the Avengers and the Justice League. The Grandmaster informed the Justice League that to save their universe, they had to gather 12 items of great power, six from each universe. Meanwhile, his ally Metron of the New Gods told the Avengers that they had to do the same to protect their world from being destroyed. This led to a series of battles as various Justice Leaguers and Avengers were traveling across the two universes and fought each other to retrieve these artifacts of power. All except Captain America and Batman, who both realized that they were just pawns in a game, and thus compared notes and ran their own investigation to uncover the plot behind this contest. They eventually backtracked Metron's steps to Grandmaster's lair and learned that Krona actually demanded that he and Grandmaster actually swap champions. What this means was that if the Avengers win the scavenger hunt, their universe would be destroyed. So in the battle for the twelfth and final item, which happened to be the Cosmic Cube, Captain America arranged for Batman to claim the item so that the League would win and Krona would leave. But Krona was a sore loser, and proceeded to take the knowledge from the Grandmaster anyway, and summoned the being who had witnessed the universe's creation, which was Galactus. As Krona began to put a beat down on Galactus to extract information about the origin of the universe, the Grandmaster used the power of the Twelve Artifacts to trap Krona by binding the DC and Marvel universes together around him. This essentially altered the history of the two universes, so that the Avengers and the Justice League were now longtime allies and had regular team-ups and get-togethers, a la the Justice League and Justice Society back in the Silver and Bronze Age of DC. Also, and this was a particular joy to me, long-dead JLA members Barry Allen, The Flash, and Green Lantern Hal Jordan were alive and still active members of the Justice League. However, the two universes of Marvel and DC were not compatible, and they were starting to destroy and merge with each other. And there was also this chronal chaos energy flittering about that was causing even the new timeline to constantly shift and change. Eventually, the heroes started to realize that their worlds were not as they should be, especially Superman and Captain America, because they were so strongly attuned to their realities, as explained in the story. And they eventually remembered parts of their earlier contest. With the convenient help of the Phantom Stranger, the heroes located the dying Grandmaster to find out what had happened. Essentially, the Grandmaster's plan to trap Krona backfired, for Krona had managed to steal some of Galactus's knowledge, including how to survive the Big Bang. 
So Krona was intentionally merging the DC and Marvel universes together so that they would destroy each other and create another Big Bang, so Krona could actually witness the creation of a new universe firsthand. So essentially, the League and the Avengers needed to stop Krona if they are to hope to not only save their universes, but to restore the proper universes again. There was also a very emotional moment um, of the Grandmaster showing the heroes events from their true timelines, including the tragedies that had befallen the various Marvel and DC characters over the past few decades. The death of Barry Allen and Superman, Hal Jordan going mad and becoming Parallax, the loss of Vision and Wanda's children, the end of Hank and Janet Pym's marriage, uh, among others. It made some of the heroes actually contemplate uh, leaving the universes as they were to prevent these tragedies from happening. But Hal Jordan, in a very good character moment, said that it was not their place to play God, and he inspired everyone to actually work together and restore the true reality. Meanwhile, Krona had revealed to Metron that he had discovered that there was a sentient consciousness that existed in both universes. This was essentially revealed to be those universal avatars of eternity for Marvel and Kismet for DC. Krona had used the power of the Twelve Items to capture the Avatars and intended to force them to give up their secrets. The Avengers and the Justice League worked together to travel to Krona's interdimensional base of operations, which was built upon the corpse of Galactus. Krona had enlisted practically every villain uh, that the Avengers and the Leaguers had fought to bar the hero's entry into his stronghold, so Captain America essentially coordinated the attack by all of the heroes against them. And by all of the heroes, I mean every single member of the Avengers and Justice League in their 40-plus year history. For that chronal chaos energy I had mentioned earlier was still making mischief, constantly changing the rosters of both teams and even providing different versions of certain characters that had undergone major changes over the years. This slugfest continued for several pages, and some heroes, like the Vision, Hawkeye, and Barry Allen, were killed in the battle. The heroes finally made their way into the stronghold, only to be knocked senseless by Krona's immense power. In triumph, Krona turned his attention back to the trapped Eternity and Kismet, only to discover that the Flash had faked his death. The Scarlet Speedster was running circles around Krona to distract him long enough for the also-not-dead Hawkeye to shoot a TNT arrow and blow open the containment of the twelve items that were powering the Universal Avatar's prison. This created a cosmic energy vortex that sucked in Krona and all of that chronal chaos energy. So the original timelines were restored, and the stolen power items were returned to their proper places, and the only people at the stronghold were the Avengers and the Justice Leaguers at the end of the scavenger hunt contest. Hal Jordan, who then reverted to being the Spectre at the time, separated the DC and Marvel universes, as only the Spectre could, and Galactus started to reform. The heroes returned to their own respective worlds, but not before Superman and Captain America gave each other a farewell salute. In the epilogue, it was revealed that Krona had imploded to form a cosmic egg, which would eventually hatch into a new universe, and thus Krona would finally learn the secrets of that creation by being a part of it. We also learned that the Grandmaster was no longer dead, and that Metron intentionally lured Krona to the Marvel Universe as part of this big mad plan to stop Krona's rampage. In the near final note, the Grandmaster stated that this was actually the first game he had played where all sides had won. The Grandmaster won the scavenger hunt, the heroes saved their universes and most of the status quo, and Krona would eventually have the answers he sought. Metron and the Grandmaster parted ways, thinking that perhaps they would play the game again someday. When I asked you to do the um, synopsis of the comic, I didn't expect you to phone it in like that, really. No, well, that's uh, you've done a very thorough and excellent job there, and I think that's worthwhile because this comic is really hard to find. Um, it's been reprinted a few times, but it is uh, there's no arrangement to keep it in print at all, um, and it's not available on Comixology and the usual legal channels. So yeah, it's because the two it's because the two companies cannot agree on a deal. Oh yeah, which is ludicrous. It's withholding fine art from the world. And uh, I've read this story twice, and I read it. Um, I borrowed it from my friend Kevin when I was staying at his house after Heroes Con. Yes, I went to Heroes Con, <laughs> and it was very overwhelming the first time I read it because there's so much going on. And it really is um, 
it's like a, a thrill ride that it's really hard to take in all the details of. And I read it again just before we recorded today because I borrowed it from my friend who bought the collector's edition um, uh, on eBay and he, he got a, quite a good bargain for it. Yeah, I mean, trying to summarise the plot when you've read this twice is like uh, trying to count the rivets on a water slide as you go down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you've done an excellent job. You've obviously read it more than twice. Uh, definitely. Um, but and I spent a week going over it again before this recording. So because this is not something that you can read really quickly, for sure. I mean, there, there's essentially fan service on every single page. Yeah. And I, I think that's probably um, my reluctance about it has been the fact that I, I don't feel equipped because I predominantly a DC fan and predominantly a post-crisis fan. I haven't really felt equipped to um, evaluate and enjoy this comic fully. But I, I think by about the third chapter of it um, on my second read, I I was caught in it and I was thinking this would be amazing if you were a fan of both universes and you knew all the minutiae and you got everything, you got every reference. This would be incredible. I think I, I caught that feeling finally on the second read. Yeah, it, it's amazing. You can just, the, just the energy and enthusiasm in both the writing and the art, you can just feel it on, on every page. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I don't know every single bit of minutia from, from either DC or Marvel Universe, despite my uh, reputation that seems to precede me, because uh, I was more of a DC reader myself over the years. And then uh, post-crisis, I was not able to read as much DC comics as, as I used to. Yeah, well, I mean, there's some scenes in this where you start seeing some 90 characters like Bloodwind and the Extremists, and I think, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, that is yes. um, high service for the people who really <laughs> know everything. So Yes, I don't know if that's really a deep cut, because it was more recent. <laughs> well, it's a cut, because it was recent, and the, it was pretty rough <laughs> in the 90s reading those uh, titles. Yes, yes, I, I, I do have to admit that I did not read that much of, of DC Comics in the 1990s. But, I mean, there's little nods like you see Maxwell Lord, you see the uh, JLI, Bwahaha teams, yes. etc. So it's it's good to see all that. Now, is it possible to have a, to identify what your favorite bits are in this story? The most powerful moment, I think, to me, was in part two when Superman finally beats Thor in their one-on-one -on -one battle, and 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 most of the other Avengers basically break off from their duels and just gang up on Superman. And I read Kurt Busiek's uh, Avengers when, when George Perez was illustrating it. So I felt that twinge in my brain as I read the Avengers dialogue during that sequence as they were just uh, basically beating up Superman and just the responses from the other leaguers watching it and how emotional that was, I think, was, was a very powerful moment for me. But then just seeing DC characters fighting Marvel villains and vice versa in general and just having DC and Marvel characters just conversing in the same panel, especially in part three, where they were longtime allies and they're just very friendly. There's just a charge in that. There's a scene where Darkseid wears the Infinity Gauntlet for a panel or two. And I can just see fan art of that today. And not and a lot of those fans that drew that probably didn't even realize that it actually happened in a comic. Yeah, and if the event had happened today, it would be... Um Darkseid and Thanos, they would be the evil protagonists yes. of it. <laughs> and we'd probably be phoning in to see which was more popular. Yeah. <laughs> but, but despite all the bombastic battles, there, there are great quiet character moments in there, too, especially in part four. There's this great sequence of Barry Allen and Hal Jordan uh, talking about their successors as they're about to go off to what to them would actually be their final battle because they both realize that they're actually supposed to be dead in the actual timeline in this story but it, but it's great there, there's actually that that a couple of panels of the annual the so-called annual get together the jla and the avengers where they had the luau theme and just that one panel where you're seeing all these different discussions and and the arm wrestling between wonder woman and um it's wonder man isn't it i thought it was wonder man yeah well i wasn't sure if it was wonder man or whether it was hercules but i think it was wonder man and uh, uh, She-Hulk is cheering them on, and, and Aquaman is there too, and it, it was just it, it it's just fun stuff. And actually, Batman was wearing a lay over his <laughs> costume, which you know you think is ridiculous, but that's just so 80s Batman. Yeah, it was just wonderful. Oh, and in part three, 
This epic story literally pauses for a panel so Batman can take a sip of Jarvis's tea <laughs> like a boss. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. I think my favourite bit is it's in Chapter 3 where the universe is emerging and the the timelines are coming together. And, yeah, it's like you. It's seeing the teams um, together in harmony and relaxing and fun. I, th- I found that to be the most enjoyable part, particularly after all the fighting against each other and, you know, people getting very frustrated with uh, their counterparts and uh, the fact that you've got these two teams who'd really aren't good at giving up and surrendering. So yeah. having them clash constantly, it, it doesn't go well for either team in, in each case. So, yeah, but uh, seeing them all together and chilling um, was like a reward for uh, enduring that tough time beforehand. Yeah, definitely. And, I, and I'm glad that the, I'm glad that um, they use that alternate timeline created by the hookup of the Marvel and DC universes. And by hookup, you know, there's actually a double entendre there. But um, but just just to give readers a taste of the friendly team up between the JLA and Avengers, you know, where they're not so adversarial toward each other, save the occasional friendly rivalry between Hawkeye and Green Arrow. I thought that was very clever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're both um, personality type of the same ilk. Yes, indeed, indeed. So it, uh, just the fact that they would clash like that and and give those friendly jibes to each other is is just so natural, so expected. So yeah, we're we're, we're both agreement. This is really good. Um, has great art, a good story, and everything. Where do you think it went as far as what it generated for um, you know both universes or or the DC universe in particular? Um, I mean, I know there's a JLA story that picks up on the the cosmic egg. And it becomes, you know, the MacGuffin of that story. Uh, yeah, what what do you know about this? Yeah, I, I remember that hearing of that Justice League story. I actually did not read it, but I understand that that story also resurrected the uh, the universe of Quard and and the Crime Syndicate, uh, which were actually killed off within the first few pages of this crossover. Yeah. Uh, and to be honest, I don't know if the other Marvel related dimension, the one with uh, Thundera was um was resurrected in the marvel side or not it wasn't quite clear whether the defeat of krona basically undid everything that krona did yeah i'm not sure but that's marvel so who cares that that's true yeah i mean vision was supposedly dead at the end of this story and i'm sure he he was fixed (laughs) (laughs) yeah all right well so yeah there's that one arc i i picked that up last year and read it and um i was expecting something pretty special and i didn't feel like it delivered in that regard. But anyway, we'll take a break and then we'll come back and maybe we'll start doing the scoring. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Professor Zoom Yukonori led an ongoing expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. With unique celebrity guest perspectives to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Solomon Grundy don't understand. Entity Terraman. I'm not following either. Bizarro totally get it. I intend to participate in your podcast show of wonders. As if I wasn't nervous enough. Little Professor Man. Man splaining again. Accessing files. Experience the wonder. Bizarro. What in tarnation did you do? Adios, partner. He am Bizarro Terra Man. Goodbye. Of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Watch out, you square brain varmint. <laughs> Only on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. So now it's the part of the show where we look at the scores for this event, and uh, the way we do that is we divide it into four categories, which are eventiness, um, writing, art and covers, and impact and legacy, and we score it out of ten each. Um, So there's two of us that, if we give it full scores, we'll have 80 points worth of scoring. But because I like to have 100, we have a person who's a semi-OCD who will give us their score, and then we halve their score to get it out of 20, and that will give us a result out of 100. Is everybody following along at home? I hope so. So, um, Zoom, do you want to talk about the eventiness of this event that evented? Of course, yes. <laughs> this this is actually the probably the eventiest event that DC ever evented. Um, I am giving it a score of 10. This miniseries was indeed epic. And, of course, I had been waiting to read Justice League Avengers since I had first heard the promotional buzz about the original 
one shot that was planned in the 1980s. And the size and scale of this story did not disappoint. Um, it again had that grand epic scope that to me was just as great as the 1985 Crisis on Infinite Earths. Granted, much of this event was essentially a succession of superpowered slugfests, but they are a wonder to behold. Um, and by employing the clever use of chronal chaos, this event um, also served to pay tribute to the various members and rosters throughout the 40 plus year history of both teams. It was fantastic. Wow. Oh, oh, I'm going to have to disagree with you there. No, I'm not. I'm giving it a 10 as well. <laughs> it's the, the JLA, the the heart and soul and the biggest team in the DC Universe versus the Avengers, uh, who are the same for the Marvel Universe. So, yeah, it it can't really get any bigger unless they put the Doom Patrol in. But, you know, actually that would <laughs> probably diminish it slightly. <laughs> I mean, they had Dr. Forklift from Plastic Man. I was just talking to Max Romero about this earlier today, that, that Dr. Forklift actually shows up in a cameo. So I'm, the Doom Patrol must be in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, well, they've eluded me on this uh, two reads. But, uh, okay, so for the writing, I think this is really well written um, and very enjoyable. I mean, it, it's hard not to compare this to Crisis on Infinite Earths because the, you know, the George Perez art, similar you know, epicness and uh, you know, a big DC event. Um, I find this more of a pleasure to read, I think, because um, it, it's, you know, much more contained. It's four issues. I mean, they're oversized issues, so admittedly, so it's, it's quite, um, lengthy, but it's not Crisis on Infinite Earths lengthy. And it doesn't, I, I think it doesn't have the extreme tragedy that, uh, Crisis, you know, that, you know, drags the enjoyment of Crisis down a bit. I mean, it makes it epic, but, yeah, I, I found this better written than Crisis and, you know, really did a great job on both teams on all the characters So across the board. There was nothing where I thought, well, that's out of character or that voice is slightly off or that's slightly wrong. So I'm going to give it a 10 for writing. Yep. You know, I would give this a 10, but I really should deduct a point because, you know, the overall plot, convoluted as it was, was fairly derivative. You mentioned that that's very crisis. And of course, I mentioned the similarities to crisis and the Avengers Defenders War crossover in jest earlier. And, and even that was not the first comic book story in which two immensely powerful beings pit two superhero teams against each other to track down a number of items that possess unimaginable power. But really, there are hardly any stories that are completely unique. And, and that's not only true of comic books. Um, as we have all heard, there are essentially like seven basic ways to tell a story. Um, but at any rate, as much as I would deduct a point for the derivative storyline, I would have to award an extra point to uh, Mr. Busick for delivering an exciting and engaging story. He deftly juggled so many characters to make them serve the story. And as you had stated, each one seemed to speak and act in character to me, with the notable exceptions being Superman and Captain America's uh, reactions to each other's heroes and worlds. But that was actually a plot point uh, that was noticed by other characters as odd behavior. I suppose the only other out-of-character moment to me was Wonder Woman's angry charge at Hercules uh, in retaliation to the Marvel Universe counterpart to her mother, Hippolyta. But do not get me wrong, I, I actually like this sequence, and Diana having that righteous vengeance made complete and perfect sense. It just ran counter to the conclusion of Mr. Perez's Challenge of the Gods saga that ran in his late 1980s uh, Wonder Woman series which ended with Diana and Hippolyta forgiving Hercules for his atrocity. So just to see all that anger kind of come out was a bit of a shock to me. But again, I think it was very, very well handled. So so essentially, I guess I, the, the writing is back to a 10. Oh, good. I was worried for a minute. <laughs> mm. Okay, um, let's talk about uh, the art and the covers. Zoom, do you have any opinions on this? I do, I do. But first, one thing I forgot to mention in the writing... And you, you brought this up a little bit earlier when you mentioned Marvel versus DC. I should point out that Mr. Busick had presented more reasonable and logical outcomes for these battles between DC and Marvel characters than that DC versus Marvel vote-in event of the previous decade. And that just demonstrates an extensive knowledge of the characters and their, and their capabilities, which, which was great. True, very true. Now, back to the art and coverage, I answer your question, yes. I see this as George Perez's grand opus. I give it a 10. Uh, there are 48 pages in four books, plus wraparound covers, 
200 pages of just pure beauty. It's fantastic. His sense of storytelling, and I've said this before in other podcasts, but his sense of storytelling is phenomenal. Each panel flows effortlessly. It's like I'm watching a movie. And in many cases, he uses these wonderful visual cues that draw the eye precisely where it needs to go. Um, and I'm not just talking about linear storytelling. Um, in part, in, in, in issue four, there's this wonderful two-page spread in which the members of both teams are making modifications to that Atlantean warcraft so that they can travel to, um, to Krona's stronghold. And then there are these seven cutaway shots around that big, huge panel of, of just individual characters. And they're all happening at the same time, these little side conversations. It just adds that, that little richer detail to, to just this one scene in the story. And there are so many crowd scenes. Um, you mentioned that this thing is very overwhelming. And, and Mr. Perez can draw multiple characters in a scene and still yet give each one special attention. Now, I have heard a complaint that people have said about George Perez's art is that when you look at crowd fight scenes like this, like, like even on in JLA Avengers number two in the, in the opening doubles page spread, which is complete, completely filled with that first battle of both the JLA and the Avengers teams, a reader does not know where they're supposed to look first. But to me, you know, the, the, there's just a lot going on and you can get lost in the detail. It's overwhelming, as you said, but to me, it doesn't really matter because no matter where you start to look in that scene, you're always going to find something interesting. And Mr. Perez puts little clever bits in there that, you know, as a longtime comic book fan, I enjoy. You you get an honest look of surprise on Batman when he kicks through the vision. Or there's that look on Plastic Man's face as Quicksilver is tying him around a roof antenna at super speed. There are just all these little bits of storytelling, even in the minor details and, and in the facial expression and the body language. It just adds an extra dimension to every panel. And the colors by Tom Smith with all those characters and the lighting and effects, he, it does not clash with the line work at all. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And going back to that climax in, in part four, which was essentially that big multi-page hero versus villain brawl with that chronal chaos uh, energy causing the timeline to continuously shift and the characters being replaced by versions of uh, from different comic eras. Again, that just essentially makes the book a love letter to the rich character history of both Marvel and DC Comics. And as stated before, you can just feel the energy and the enthusiasm of George Perez in every panel. To make a long story short, too late. <laughs> it's a 10. It's a 10. Oh, I, I didn't know where you were going with that. <laughs> wow. Uh, I can't disagree with anything you've said. I mean, the art is phenomenal. I mean, it, that was kind of the hardest thing to say, which was the best bit, because it's it's like 200 pages of best bits all put together. Uh, you know, there isn't a weak panel or, a, you know, a line out of place or a poorly conveyed emotion on anybody in throughout the entire thing, which is just remarkable. I mean, uh, George Perez is a, a talent of the ages, and, you know, I don't think he will ever be surpassed. Agreed. So, yeah, I'm giving it a, let me look, a, no, a 10. There we go. <laughs> okay. Now, for the impact and legacy of this one. Now, this is a phenomenal comic across the board. Um, the hardest thing to evaluate from this is, you know, does it have a strong impact and legacy, apart from being this remarkable piece of art at the end of it? Um there's a little bit of story that came out of it. So in that JLA story, as we discussed, you know, the, the Quad universe gets resurrected, the um, crime syndicate comes back, and they, the egg, you know, gets a little bit of play. But that isn't a super memorable story. And, yeah, so I find it quite hard to quantify, but uh, conservatively, I'm just going to give it a three for impact and legacy because there was there was some... Um, but, you know, I'm always hopeful that one day there will be more impact and legacy for this story and they will finally reprint the damn thing so people can get a copy. Yes, that that seems to be part of the legacy right now is the lack of one. Yeah. So how do you feel about it? I, I do I do agree with you on what you said about legacy, but, you know, my impact and legacy score is leaning more on impact. The impact of this project was incredible. During the time when this uh, um, project was being released... Uh, most news magazines and um, comic book convention programs would have covers that were Justice League Avengers related, usually drawn by George Perez. You'd, you'd see a back issue magazine with Captain America and Batman in it. Um, there is a wizard magazine with Superman and Thor. 
uh, or Superman and Captain America, excuse me, Wonder Woman and Thor were on another one. This was a big event, and the entire industry knew it. So the impact, again, was just incredible. And this was literally the DC Marvel cross-company project to end all DC Marvel cross-company projects in more ways than one. <laughs> Dan DiDio actually went on record to say that, you know, we, we'd love to do another Marvel-DC company crossover, but how can you top JLA Avengers? You can't. <laughs> That's his reason why they're not going to do it. Marvel may have other reasons. I mean, again, DC and Marvel can't seem to agree on a deal to to get this reprinted again or even available digitally. Yeah, man, that's such a shame. Oh, I know. In fact, somebody posted some panels just on Twitter the other day, and nobody knew what it was from, it seemed. <laughs> or at least those, those people that were there, they were like, wow, this must be from the 90s or whatever. You know, they, they didn't even recognize what it was. So it's like, I'm, I'm very concerned that... You know, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, and uh, I must admit, this is, of all the things that we have covered on DCOCD, this is the first one that I don't own. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've heard of it. Well, I had heard of it, yes, and uh, yeah. I, I was wise enough to think it's probably ought to be on the list, So, um, and reading it definitely confirmed that it does belong on this list. It is a super eventy event. So Indeed, and, and it doesn't have, I mean, it doesn't have all those multiple tie-in issues or anything you have to buy you just buy these four issues and and that's it but you get so much out of it so what score are you going to land on for this oh i'm giving it a 10 <laughs> more for impact than legacy but there was a legacy it's just not the legacy we wanted this is almost like the legacy that happened with the cancellation of the previous jla avengers project of 1983 because that led to the cancellation of a planned sequel to the Teen Titans X-Men crossover. They were going to do a second one. Ah, yeah. And it created a, an artistic void in the universe that everyone wanted to see filled at some point. At some point, yes, yes. And they tried to fill that in the 90s <laughs> and failed miserably. I, th I think this, was, this is what Marvel versus DC should have been. Yeah. Really, and, I, and I'm just glad that that project of the 90s didn't take um, didn't take the wind out of the sails. JLA Avengers. Yeah, true. So we're not doing this scoring alone. We're going to be joined by um, my friend Kevin. Uh, Kevin is a, a great bloke. He's a listener to Waiting for Doom who sort of reached out to us. And um, when uh, James and I went to Heroes Con all the way from Australia, we uh, ended up having our flights cancelled on the way back due to uh, poor weather in the middle of the US. And uh, Kevin put us up for a few days. So because of that, we got to hang out with Kevin and uh, read his comics when he went to work and watch his Netflix and fun things like that. So... <laughs> So Kevin was the uh, the person who uh, enabled me to first read this book, and because of that, I thought I should reach out to him and say, can you give us some scores on this, Kevin? And uh, Kevin's done a great job, so let's listen to that. Brilliant. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me on as a guest, especially for such a big crossover as this one. It's a really unique comic I've loved since it came out, so I'm excited to share some thoughts on it. Without further ado, my scores on the four categories are as follows. Eventiness. This is a 10 out of 10. While this may not be a purely DC crossover that's going to have a lasting impact on that universe, the very fact that we finally get to see the two flagship teams of the Marvel and DC universes together bumps it up all the way. Comic fans were teased with this crossover starting in the early 80s, so it took us around 20 years to finally see it come to fruition. It did not disappoint. While we've had plenty of other Marvel DC crossovers, the only other one that comes close to this book was the X-Men New Teen Titans one. JLA Avengers exists on a much grander scale and was well worth the wait. Not only do we get appearances from comprehensive lineups of both teams, we also get a plethora of villains, teams traveling to the most exotic locales of their respective universes, smaller teams out to claim the myriad objects Cronin needs, and references to all sorts of DC and Marvel ephemera. Add in the sheer majesty of things like seeing Superman taking Captain America's shield into battle, and there's no way this comic isn't a big deal. Writing. I give this a 9 out of 10. For an event like this, I can really only think of two writers who are so well-versed in DC and Marvel history to be able to pull it off. Mark Wade and Kurt Busiek. So having Kurt write it was a perfect choice. 
He takes the classic trope of cross-dimensional team-ups that started in Justice League of America and manages to mesh the two universes together so well. He also puts in so many nice little flourishes, like Hawkeye saying the JLA are a bunch of Squadron Supreme wannabes, and Kyle Rayner, when he sees Fin Fang Foom and the other monsters, commenting that those are some great-looking monsters, because they're Kirby, so why wouldn't they be? The basic plot is a pretty formulaic one, but Busick does a great job of keeping it exciting and adding another dimension by having an outcome where all the characters in the story get, or will get, a happy ending. His attention to detail is great, such as Flash being powerless in the Marvel Universe because there's no speed force, and the argument between Diana and Hercules over what he did to Hippolyta. Busiek also does a great job bringing in various versions of the characters. Suddenly, Giant Man is replaced by Yellow Jacket, or Wonder Woman going from having the W on her chest to her eagle. If you've read Avengers Forever, though, it's really no surprise that he writes that sort of stuff into the story. Covers and art. 10 out of 10. Honestly, for a book like this, there was only one choice, and George Perez was it. He knows both teams back and forth, and he's the undisputed master of team-ups. Since he was also the artist attached to the original project, it makes perfect sense to bring him in. I feel that the 20-year delay might have been a huge boon for his art as well. He got that much more time in to practice his already amazing pencils and inks, and it's worth mentioning I think this book really benefits from his being able to ink his own work. I don't think I can hurl enough superlatives George's way about this book's art, but I've loved his work since I was an impressionable young kid who discovered New Teen Titans, and he just keeps getting better. Legacy and Impact, 6 out of 10. I feel like there were a few ramifications of this book that played out elsewhere, but I've read a lot of comics in the interim, and I don't remember where they were exactly. And this also came out during a time where I wasn't buying a lot of new comics, so I may have missed them to begin with. The biggest legacy and impact this book has is that it's sated the few tastes fans got of this team-up's potential back in the early 80s. I remember seeing some Perez promo art and Amazing Heroes and couldn't have, believe how lucky we were, only we had to wait. I also feel like this series capped off a few years of Marvel and DC putting out other crossovers like Darkseid Galactus, Batman, Captain America, and the Amalgam Universe. It's a shame they can't find some more common ground so we could see a sequel to this book or that long-awaited X-Men New Teen Titans sequel that fell victim to their rivalry. Even so, we can pick this book up and enjoy that time when both companies decided it was worth it to make us fans happy. Thanks for having me on, and I will look forward to the episode, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for that, Kevin. Great. Excellent. So Kevin has given it, let's add his uh, 35, 35 out of 40. And uh, because he's semi-OCD, we halve that, but we round up because I'm generous like that. So we end up with 18 out of 20 for him. And uh, Zoom, let me do the math. Oh, this is tricky. It's a 10, a 10, a 10, and a 10. That, uh, I'll just get a bit of paper. Um, oh, 40, 40, yes. And you carried the knot, right? <laughs> I did. And I gave it a 10, a 10, a 10, and a 3, which is a 33. And so we add all these together, and it looks like, wow, we have a score of 91, which is a ladder-topping score. So we have Crisis on Infinite Earths has been defeated as the number one event. It is now JLA Avengers. Wow. It is well-deserved, in my opinion. Like you said, it, it's 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 better written, it's tighter than Crisis, and has that same epic scope. So it doesn't surprise me a bit. <laughs> yeah, well, that's massive. So we at the moment, the I don't think the ladder is active online at the moment, but we are working to bring it to you. So if you guys want to keep an eye out and have a look occasionally for WaitingForDoom.com, we will have the ladder up there as soon as the site goes live, and you'll be able to see all the events and all their scores and uh, see them in order and change them and rank them by score if you want, etc. Anyway, uh, it's time for some feedback. So we did get some recent feedback from uh, our good friend and listener, Jimmy McGlinchey from Ireland. And he said, hi, Paul and Mike. Uh, belated Happy New Year to you all. Have enjoyed the last few episodes of DC OCD Cast and wanted to give you feedback on the last few. So he started with Day of Judgment. I remember this being the start of the rehabilitation of Hal Jordan, but rereading the miniseries, I was not impressed. Uh, the writing was fine, but it was very much early Jeff Johns and did not excite me as much as his later writing would do. The main complaint for me was the art, which 
to me, was not suited to the bombastic style that a crossover needs. Uh, then it goes on to Young Justice Sins of Youth. This was a fun event. I know the impact of the event was minimal, but I just enjoyed the humour involved in this. Peter David really let loose with the humour on the Young Justice series, and it spilled over into the wider DCU with this crossover. Then Superman, Our Worlds at War. I recently got the two trades of this crossover and was just struck by how much you had to be immersed in the Superman backstory to be fully up to speed on all that happened. And I was collecting Superman titles at the time. I think the problem with this story was that so many of the deaths that occurred uh, were slightly off the to side, like Aquaman's death was a bit ambiguous, Hippolyta's death was spread over two different books, Action and Wonder, Wonder Woman. Heck, even Guy Gardner died in Our Worlds of War, and there was no comment about it until he was brought back to life in a subsequent Action Comics issue. It was a good story, but the choices in framing the story made it a hard one to follow. He says, looking forward to future episodes and interested to hear what you think of the Joker's last laugh event on the next DCU, uh, DCOCD. Best wishes, Jimmy. Thanks, Jimmy. And you've probably heard the Joker's last laugh episode by now, Jimmy. So you know what we thought. And uh, <laughs> it's it's no JLA Avengers. I'll let me tell you that. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's probably it for this show. Uh, Zoom, where can people find you in uh, the computer world? Oh, goodness. Um, mostly Facebook and Twitter in my own name. Um, Done in One Wonders podcast, Wonder Show, on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Well, that is an excellent show. And uh, you do art on the, the line it has drawn for comic book resources? I do. I haven't done it in a while. But yes, um, on CBR.com every Friday, there is a feature called The Line It Is Drawn, which is basically uh, fan art. Uh, dictated by Twitter suggestions uh, around a, a weekly theme. Yeah, well, it's great that you curate that and contribute to it. So, well, thank you. Yeah, it was, I was—I couldn't believe that I was actually selected to be part of it. It's awesome. Anyway, uh, next time on the show, it's um, another universally beloved crossover. It's Identity Crisis from 2004. Nothing controversial about that, and everyone loves it. So. <laughs> But if you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, contact us at uh, Twitter on at DCOCDcast, and you can also send us emails to DCOCDcast at gmail.com. Um, and, yeah, look out for the scores on waitingfordoom.com, which is coming very soon, if not now, but I don't know because we're recording before we edit and post. So so there may be no waiting for Waiting for Doom. There may be none. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Zoom. Thanks so much for joining me on this one. Um, absolute pleasure to talk with you and to uh, look at this uh, shabby event. Well, thank you for putting me up and putting up with me. <laughs> all right. We'll see you all next time on DCOCD. Bye.